Welcome to Comically Confused, a New 52 podcast. We're covering the entire New 52 one book at a time, and sometimes getting sidetracked by great TV shows. I'm your host, Grant. And I'm your host, Nate. And today, we're going to be mixing things up a bit and talking about the TV series and comic Invincible. Uh, This just about a month ago finished its first season on Amazon, and after a brief COVID-related hiatus, uh, we feel like it's been enough time that we can just go full spoiler heavy on this topic. Uh, So with no further ado, Nate, how about you tell us a little bit about your history with Invincible? Invincible always been like a cult classic for comic book fans. Like once people start, once you have read all the stuff like Batman Year One and like Watchmen and like Dark Knight's Return, you get deeper in the comic book. People like suggest Invincible for like a superhero fan. Yeah, I remember early on looking around message boards as I was getting into comics and seeing Invincible recommended to new readers and old readers alike, uh, and really just people wanting to break out of the mold of Marvel and DC books. I was very much sold on the book when I finally got around to reading it, uh, just since it did address so many of the issues I was seeing in common books in the Marvel and DC side of things. Uh, I loved how it wasn't restrained by the same kind of company and editorial mandates. Uh, So yeah, this really blew me away just as much as some of those prolific major works like Watchmen and Batman Year One do for other people. Yeah, um, I think the biggest appeal of Invincible, they just play with all like the superhero tropes that you see in like main two comics like uh, multi-reality, sidekicks, uh, mantle taking, all these different um, tropes you see so often, man. And like they just play them straight and like don't have to do retconning or like have to like undermine it or like try to put too much detail like play with every single major superhero trope and seeing how kirkman the writer of this play with that is super interesting yeah it's been so nice getting to see what for honestly about 10 years has been my favorite comic series get adapted so well and so lovingly into a tv show now because while yeah the show and the comic kind of tackle this material in slightly different ways uh, i can see that the same creative team now maybe expanded a bit now that it's a total tv show and whole writing staff uh, are still kind of tackling a lot of those same ideas maybe adapting this a bit to now tackle tropes in superhero movies and TV shows and not just comic books circa the late 90s, early 2000s. So I'm honestly blown away by how much both pieces of media have knocked it out of the park, despite having so many significant differences in so much time between one's publication and the other. Yeah, and like, it's a big, for adapting like Invincible, you don't see that often that you have creative team for the comic book actually like work on like the show itself i think kirkman actually wrote the first and like last episode and um cory walker was helping design characters so they were so heavily involved and and i wouldn't say um someone who watches a lot of anime and read manga it's so nice to have an adaptation that's just not one-to-one and someone who have read the source material can like enjoy it because it's just it's not exactly the same yeah and it feels like the stronger second draft in a lot of ways uh, because Robert Kirkman was only around like 23, 24 when he wrote both this and walking dead, which I mean, that's a bit of a hit to the ego there to know this guy made two of the biggest comics of all time. when he was younger than I am, but uh, regardless, I'm, I really like that I can read both pieces of media or I can take them both in back to back and see that things are done better now. The decade and a half of writing experience Robert Kirkman has kind of attained and 
since publishing Invincible, he's definitely using to rework a lot of these early stories in a way that works better for a televised medium and also just makes these characters a lot more likable and interesting in many ways. Yeah, he learned a lot from doing Walking Dead as well and how like creative controls are kind of like kind of wonky there. So like he's a little more involved in this. And um, I think a big difference of this, like Kirkman said himself in an interview with the Invincible podcast that I would like recommend you everyone check out. They've been doing Invincible before it was cool. <laughs> but uh, Kirkman said himself that he wanted like, hey, I don't want to do the same thing. That Invincible was a comic book. This is a TV show, and like he said, I'm going to be inspired by making this. When I enjoy TV shows, like the TV dramas, like Breaking Bad, Sopranos, Game of Thrones, he said, I'm going to try to apply that into Invincible because I want to play with a TV format. And you really see this in the show itself, especially with in like 40 minutes compared to like most anime shows that like uh, around like 20 minutes. Yeah, and that's something that I really think comes to the show's credits. Uh, In a while, we'll get into some of the basically the flaws of the TV show. But whenever I list any problems I have with the show, I have to take into account that there's not really another American animated series that comes out in a 40-minute to an hour-long format like this with an audience for adults. So, well, I mean, if you're looking in the world of anime, this isn't anything too uncommon. As far as American animation goes, this show is basically one of a kind, and that makes the few flaws it does have way more forgivable in my eyes. Yeah, the closest thing I ever had to, like, some similar Invincible is, like, Young Justice or, like, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Like, that still had to cater to the um, children audience because they were, like, on Cartoon Network. You know, those shows are basically made for, like, adults, especially Justice League. But, yeah, Invincible is just a new thing I haven't seen before in American animation. Like, most American animation are just raunchy comedies. And, like, we actually have an animated action show for character adults. So, like, I'm, I'm appreciating for this being a good adaptation of my favorite comic and, like, might lead to more animation that's just not solely for kids. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I'm really hoping that this leads to more animated ap- adaptations of other comic books or uh, maybe kind of when they want to take darker twists or reboots on children's TV shows or... Uh, other kind of like comic and toy-based properties, sci-fi ideas, or really almost anything. I hope this show is kind of that foot in the door that people can consider like, hey, what about animation for adults? Uh, but yeah, maybe that can be considered now. All right. Um, you want to kick us off with like a serious discussion? Absolutely. So as a fellow longtime fan of the comic book, I'm curious what your initial feelings were as this series started coming out with its first couple episodes. How did you feel about the way one of our favorite series was being adapted. I was kind of scared, to be honest. Just because as a manga and anime fan, I don't enjoy reading adaptations. Because, like, manga and anime, again, are like, it's basically just, like, a straight adaptation with just minor differences. So it's just adding, like, voice acting and might be, like, a couple changes or added characterization or whatever. But mostly it's, like, the same story. So I was kind of scared. Like, I I really want to enjoy this show. But, like, I thought it's going to be, like, hey, it's one-to-one. And I was hoping it'd be more, like, how they adapt other superheroes, like how Batman animated series, Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, just like just use a lot of elements from these characters and storylines and try to make it his own. And I'm kind of happy with the result of it. That like the show was more like that than like a, a straight adaptation because I probably wouldn't watch the whole thing if it's just like a one-to-one adaptation. Yeah, I I was feeling kind of the same way even while watching the first episode, because for those who haven't read the comic yet, the entire opening sequence of the first episode where the Guardians of the Globe are defending the White House, 
that's completely original to the show. So starting off with something completely new kind of threw me for a loop, but then seeing how much the show kind of understood the rest of the book and was just finding a way to change about the first 20 some issues into one season of show and rearrange the order of things to make it just flow better really kind of took off and caught my interest early on. And I just noticed that almost every episode of the show won me over a little bit more than the last or just felt like a stronger episode than the last for at least the first five or six episodes. Uh, so I, I, was apprehensive at first, but very quickly was on board with this, uh, especially because the show seemed to know what it was so quickly, where that's honestly kind of a problem with the comic, that it takes about 7 to 12 plus issues to really tell you what it is and show you where it's going. Yeah, that's a big thing, this comic in the show. And we're going to talk about it later on, where we're like comparing and contrasting, but the show hooks you right away of like, hey, evil Superman secret like everyone trying to find out you're on the edge to see like oh when is people going to find out omni man killed the guardians of the globe compared to the comic where we don't get to see that for like you issue seven or eight so like you're just getting hooked on by like hey this is a most like a satirical take on superheroes and that's the only hook you have in the comic yeah and honestly my experience with the comic was a lot different than my experience with the show Mostly because I started reading Invincible and only got through about the first six issues or so uh, as a teenager because I was honestly reading the issues illegally on a website that got shut down after I read the first six issues. So for years, I thought this was just kind of a lighthearted teenage superhero comedy book. And then years later, when I finally get access to the rest of the comic, I see, oh, wow, this was way darker than I realized, and honestly, a much more interesting concept. I'm still here for this. Uh, the show, I mean, I only think it takes about two episodes to know exactly what the show is and whether or not it's for you, and I can really appreciate when a TV show manages to do that in such a little amount of time. Yeah, because I, I think the, the general response of the Invincible that, I think the show did took it to advantage that it was, like, pretty tame in the first episode. And then, like, just the ending just hooks you. Like, hey, this is just not your standard superhero affair. This is uh, darker and um, going to deal with different stuff. And, like, I feel like Invincible coming out now with such a saturation of superhero media. It's basically how, like, the comic came out in, like, 2003 when it was, like, another saturation of, like, a lot of comics from 90s. So, uh, yeah, I think Invincible came out at the right time and it really plays with the tropes. And it, it has its own niche away from, like, something like The Boys, which is, like, a more cynical take of superheroes. Invincible is just a more grounded take of superheroes. Yeah, I've seen this described as, like, the much less cynical version of The Boys. The Boys seems anti-superheroes through and through, whereas this kind of tackles the grim realities of being a superhero. Yeah, The Boys is, like, really cynical. That's with the comics. Because, like, the comic creator who made The Boys, like, actually hates superheroes. Yeah, now... I was curious, though, we've kind of touched on it a bit, but as far as the changes the show is making, are you overall pretty on board with these, or how do you feel about the creative liberties here? Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about it more with, like, the compare and contrast, but I actually don't mind any of the creative liberties. I feel like a lot of them just support the format of a TV show, especially with, like, longer runtime than, like, a couple pages in the comic. And I, they added a lot of stuff. They modernized it a bit. Invincible had, like, uh, Robert Kirkman said himself that he, he wished he added more women and more diversity to Invincible. So they did a little little gender swapping and a little race changing, which 
I don't mind at all. It's un- it's good to have diversity and stuff. And um, they they got rid of some of the more dated jokes. How like William was uh in the closet. He just made him straight away gay. Like so, I I like majority of the changes. Yeah, honestly, I'm on the same page with that wholeheartedly, and it's why I think this show almost does a better job introducing viewers to this concept than the first 12 issues of the book does specifically because it gives us all these other things to latch on to is far less dated and just introduces viewers to the world of invincible and a much more diverse progressive and interesting version of the world of invincible yeah i think i think the comic really relies on you being a comic reader which makes sense because it's like an indie superhero book and only like us comic fans would read it but it really relies on that us knowing what how the medium of superhero comics work to really just rely on that instead of like establishing stuff and like the comic really have the time to flesh stuff out and flesh up the world and it's easier for it to stand on its own than being like hey that's just superman but evil and like that's just like the justice league you know like i i think it's like later on just throughout the show you'd be like hey you're not referring to him like bootleg justly you're referring to him as like the guardians of the globe and you're referring to, like omni man as like omni man that's like just evil superman so it's really good on that element yeah now since we're both pretty on board with what the show has been doing here i'm curious what your thoughts have been revisiting the book now years later giving us another read through i mean specifically in the writing and artwork like how do you think this book holds up reading it now it was quite it was quite a different experience just because I have read it before, so I can look at it from different lances of seeing like this material for the first time. And I watched an adaptation, a uh, modern edition of the comic, and I have to say, I kind of, I still like it. It's just its own niche, you know? It's similar to like comparing like Batman, the Brave and the Bold, or to like Batman animated series in a sense. Because they're just trying to do two different things. Like, the comic is just trying to be meta-humor about, like, comic books. And the series is just trying to be, like, drama with superheroes. And it's like, they both can exist. What I have to say personally, I can prefer the show better. But, like, I, I, I have, I did laugh reading the comic. Like, it's a couple jokes that play with, like, hey, superheroes are not a big deal. And, like, it's, like, a funny joke. They're just Mark talking to a comic book curator. It was like, hey, I just reuse panels. And, and like... <laughs> And it, it just saves time. People don't notice and they dash it in the comic. I found that hilarious. But it's it's a different experience. Yeah, it, there's definitely a lot of meta humor, uh, both within the book itself, kind of parroting the way it uses art and reuses it. And also, of course, the meta humor we've talked about with this playing off other superhero comics. Now, me personally revisiting this, and again, like this, I have been on Team Invincible for years and years uh, trying to get people to read this. I actually found the, I found while rereading the first 20 issues that I don't think this book at this phase was really carried by its writing or its art that much. The, neither of those are bad by any means. It's just they don't quite stand out as much compared to a lot of other comics I've read in the last 20 years. But I think what really sold this book at the time so early on before Kirkman really hit his stride and the really found what he was trying to do uh, i think the selling point was that this comic was doing what so many comic readers were just so hungry for at the time. since i mean the late 90s and early 2000s i think is where marvel and dc started getting really bad about retconning their characters changing major character development moments and just resetting all these heroes back to what everyone remembered them to be and just 
making everything so stagnant. This book comes along and just shows so early on that it's willing to change what it is on a dime, be as dark as it needs to be, and yeah, just do new things we had never seen before in a superhero comic. Yeah, I mean, the big two has like a big thing about, especially like the 90s, like, you know, the 90s, like, everyone's buying comics they thought it was like freaking stock and like they could sell them off one day so like comics were really focused on getting new readers more than like nowadays like and just marketing stunts like holographic covers and like oh we got this armor and, like characters were edgy and like 2000 it was still remnants of that but like invincible was just a comic for comic fans it wasn't trying to be anything big or bombastic or a deconstruction it was like hey you like comics this is gonna be a fun ride if you like you can laugh at like comics, but you know, you can it's not in like a bad tone. You're laughing because you love him. Love comic books. So it just fit in the right type. I don't think Invincible like really became like uh the best superhero comic of all time in some people's minds and personally to me. So like later on. Especially like more past like issue twelve when it really hooks you, but it's it's lighthearted fun at first. It's a good vibe. Yeah, and I mean when you say that it's lighthearted fun, I mean, that's really kind of the essence of this book early on. Because even though I thought this book was just a lighthearted superhero teen comedy uh, when I had first read it, I still thought they did that well enough to make me want to revisit it years later. And I was pleased to find out that it was so much more than that. But uh, yeah, like there's just a very nice little simple charm to the book early on, especially with how simple the art style is. I mean, it's jarring compared to how it changes later on, how it's depicted in the show. It, it feels like a fun indie comic by two people that are pretty new to this medium, but know it very well and know the experience they want to give to their reader, even if that's going to fundamentally shift over the coming issues. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of some anime I have watched where you have, like, the first couple episodes are just, like, chill and character development moments so, like, shit just hit the fan. And, like, I think that kind of something of value, even though some people call that stuff filler or, like, hey, just get to the action. But I think having that downtime really emphasize, like, hey, we care for these characters now. So, like, you do like, some, you drop a big event, it's going to hit us like a truck. Compared to, like, you just, like, Omni-Man thing, I don't think the comic would have been as successful or have the same impact if Omni-Man just killed the Guardians in issue one of the comic. Because there's way less time than, like, an episode one than the show. Yeah, and honestly, I've really got to give it to the early readers of this book picking up the first few issues, because I can only imagine what it was like to follow this book early on, and it takes seven months to tell you that Omni-Man's the bad guy and... I mean, a full year to show you what the book is. I mean, you and I both discovered this later, so you just got to breeze through Yeah, we these, benched it. Yeah, I mean, this... There's a reason there's not a million books like Invincible out there. Not just because writing this well is hard, but also because not every book gets to wait until issue seven to show you what's actually happening. A lot of books, even from the same publisher, Image Comics, will get public or will get canceled before they even hit issue six. Yeah, and... In the match, like, Invincible even lasted, like, the editor didn't tell Kirkman that, like, you can't wait till 25 to drop, like, the bombshells. Yeah, that was the original plan he'll talk about in some of his letters columns or interviews that originally he wanted to wait till issue 25 to show that Omni-Man was the bad guy, but that's just not something you can really get away with in such a volatile industry. 
Now, I am curious, though, uh, getting a little more pessimistic here, but revisiting the book, is there anything you find worse than you remembered it? Um, To be honest, I thought the characters... I thought characters did more. You know, I thought we got to know more of the characters, like, especially because later on, Invincible Comic really becomes like a ensemble cast of all these different characters, and I was just surprised how, like, Mark-focused everything was, and how, not bland, but, like, un how unremarkable Mark was as a character and as a lead. Yeah, he's very much a self-insert character early on. Like, there's not all that much to him other than just, like, sort of a wish-fulfillment person you can put yourself on. Like, he's pretty... He doesn't lose his. I know that's the running joke of, like, the show community, but, like, Mark Rip doesn't lose a fight to Omni-Man. And he, he just... A standard high schooler? He, he doesn't have anything, like, remarkable traits. And I, I feel like that's just comic Mark... It's just like he is the standard of like, hey, how would it be to live in like this type of world and be like a superhero and have like a superpower dad? He doesn't really like stand out from that role, you know? I mean, I noticed just a lot of things writing wise that uh, you can tell Robert Kirkman was a lot less experienced back then. Like, I think some of the dialogue is kind of weak in moments. Uh, yeah, Mark, as you've said, is kind of unremarkable. There's weird bits in it that just haven't aged that well not just a few problematic jokes that haven't aged well but also like the character of amber who we'll get into more later but she doesn't speak a single line of dialogue in the opening issues until after her and mark are already dating so yeah they introduce the character have her make out with the protagonist and become a thing with him before she even speaks a line and that's just that's just not something that I think you should do with a female character in any regard. Yeah, it's it's going back to the time of like female characters just using that as don't have to be a character. It was like a it's well, go back to like earlier media from like two thousand nineties and like even so about like a lot of female characters just use the props. Like wives in movies are just uses props and not be like their own character. Like they're just uses like, hey, this is the girlfriend character and that's about it. It makes the book less interesting because of it. It's not just that it isn't progressive enough or anything, mm -hmm. but, like, with the show, people are really wondering, like, oh, who's the right girl for Mark, Amber or Eve? Whereas mm -hmm. in the comic, when people are asking which female character is right for Mark, well, there's only really one female character here, and that's Eve, because Amber hasn't said a damn thing yet. So, like, of course we all thought Eve was the best girl. Her first three scenes... Two of them, she's making out with Mark. It was just a page. Yeah, like, I, I feel like one dimensional is overselling it. I mean, she barely has a dimension in this, but, like, we'll get into it later. Yeah, I can say that for most a lot of characters. Like, uh, like a lot of the characterization I know from later in the series does not happen in these earlier chapters. Now, as far as the show goes, like, we've really kind of talked up how it improves on a lot of things. And I mean, that's going to be our current theme on this episode. Mm -hmm. thing. We both really love the show and its changes. But I, I do feel like there are a few flaws that are worth calling out on the show. Um, but before I hop in on my tirades, were there anything that come to mind for you? Um, main thing is just, just don't pause the show. Just don't do it. You get a lot of bad frames. And it's just like, niche animation things like i can just tell they were like not didn't have like the biggest budget to do this and it's not even like they have the biggest budget i'm just pretty sure animation just animation just costs more than like live action stuff so they take a lot of shortcuts which is understandable because they're saving budget for like the big fights and like 
episode five and episode seven, episode eight, but like it's kind of jarring when you just see like these background CGI characters that look so out of place and not even like fully rendered. It just, uh, but that that's like my biggest complaint. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, just rough animation moments in there that just look like the JPEG. Yeah, moving JPEGs basically. Uh, and weird inconsistencies and like scenery shots. Like I remember, it was driving my wife crazy in one of the scenes where they're eating at the dinner table, and like half of the shots, it's basically a Thanksgiving dinner on the table, and the other half of the shots, there's nothing on the table. And I mean, it keeps <laughs> I didn't going. Even notice that. Like this show has learned from like the anime rule book of having characters to stand and do nothing. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, what thankfully helps save this so you don't come away thinking like, oh yeah, that cheaply animated show is, yeah, like you said, the fight scenes look great. So when the animation has to look good, it does. But I think there's just a lot of cost cutting in between yeah. those things. It's like, I noticed all like the cheap stuff during like my second and third rewatching. I didn't really notice it the first time watching it. It's like you're, when you just, because you rewatch something, you pay attention to different stuff. You already got the main juice of the story or whatever. So you just focus on different stuff and like, ah, man, those background characters that just like CGI looks so freaking bad. Like worse than like PlayStation. I'm talking about like early computer Windows animations. Yeah. And this is one of those things, though, that like if there were five made for mature audiences, uh, like premiere TV shows to compare this to. Uh, maybe this would be, like, a fatal flaw, but, I mean, as I've said, since this is the only show like yeah. this out there, yeah, I can very much forgive them for maybe not finding all of the best ways to cut corners here and there, because they're yeah, basically like, pioneering this. Even compared to anime, anime does, like, the same, like, bad background, but you see that hype fight scene, like, oh, no one's gonna call it, like, bad animation. So, yeah, that was my major flaw of the show. Now, I also wanted to call out very selectively some of the voice acting. Now, there's a lot of great voice acting performances, and I love the cast here. I mean, J.K. Simmons is just awesome as Nolan, and I love uh, Stephen Yoon as Mark, and just, you know, if you look it up, they've got so many great people here, but there's a few standouts that I think bring it down overall. Uh, the first one coming to mind here being Jason Manzukas as Rex Blode. Yeah, you didn't. You just like that. Well, let's let's see your thoughts on that. My biggest problem here is that Rex is a teenager. He's on the teen team. He's mm -hmm. supposed to be around like seventeen to nineteen, uh, maybe twenty or early twenties tops. And Jason Manzukis doing this voice just sounds like Jason Manzukis. He sounds exactly like his characters on Brooklyn Nine Nine, The League, The Good Place. Uh, Parks and Rec, it, it just sounds like those characters in this teenage superhero's body. And that can work for other characters. I mean, I can definitely hear J.K. Simmons behind Omni-Man, but I feel like it shows a lack of actual voice acting here. And I, I can see how this happens since, I mean, Jason Manzoukas kind of makes sense as a choice if you take his work from Big Mouth, where his character Jay is kind of comparable with, like, the tragic family home life, making kind of a messed up dude with this character. But the thing is, this is more than Big Mouth. This isn't a bunch of adult comedy actors voicing children the way they normally sound. No, people are mixing up their voice. I mean, 
Uh, Zachary Quinto is the voice of Robot, but he doesn't sound just like Siler or Spock delivering those lines. Or when we see Dwight Schrute or Rain Wilson, who played Dwight Schrute, doing the voice of Lex Luthor, it's not just Dwight Schrute being Lex Luthor. No, he brings a new performance to it. And Rexplode literally just is Jason Manzukis, and it doesn't fit the body or the character. I haven't seen too much for Jason Manzuka beforehand. I've seen a couple stuff. I haven't seen too much with him, so I think the main problem I had with Rex was like when his first episode he appeared in, episode two. I think he kind of overdid it, but I feel like later on he kind of mellowed out. Like he wasn't at one hundred percent the whole time with his like high making jokes, like high voice and all that. I, I feel like he mellowed out throughout the season, especially like later on. Like he, I, I feel like he nailed it later on. It just most characters were like 100 from the start. Jake and Mizuka took time to really evolve in the Rex. I can actually see that. I, As you say that, I think about especially his lines in the last episode. And some of those are actually delivered pretty well and just work for their scenes a lot more. So, yeah. So that's probably where I got off on the wrong foot is, yeah, like those early episodes. He's <laughs> going, uh, I think, a little too hard. Um, maybe just not changing his voice up enough. The yeah. <laughs> the only other major voice acting flaw I thought actually came in Justin Roiland's surprise appearances in the reanimate episode that I think is like the sixth one, if I'm remembering correctly, five or six. He shows up and is a random college student and just sounds like almost Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty, delivering all these lines. But I mean, Rick, Rick Sanchez is an old guy, so hearing the same exact type of uh, to hear the same exact voice coming from a guy in college just doesn't feel right and i could kind of see what they were going for going with this like stupid hot shot drinking too much burping and like being kind of a misogynist like why they would pick the voice actor for rick sanchez for that i just think they either didn't lean far enough into it like i don't know maybe making the guy who built the reanimate be justin roiland or they leaned into it maybe too far by making these characters that don't look or seem anything like Rick sound exactly like Rick. I get that. It was pretty jarring. I didn't see the character anymore. I was like, hey, that's Justin Rowland. <laughs> I, I didn't have issue with it, but I can see an issue with it. But it was only for such so short of a time. This is the first time with the drunk guy. Yeah, he didn't have much of a character to yeah. work with there. So. I don't think anyone else can do the drunk the drunk voice better than him, though, with the burps and stuff, though. <laughs> but yeah, I get it. It was pretty jarring to hear that voice out that character design. Some of my other problems with the show, they are nitpicks, but the problem is they are recurring nitpicks at the same time. Uh, like, I thought the soundtrack just seemed a little bit off at times. I mean, sometimes it was great, but at other times it just felt a little bit too on the nose. And just hearing very modern pop songs with lyrics over this style of animation, I think, just seemed a little weird since we don't see that many other places. Um, I don't know. Most of the time, I, I can't remember most of, the time, most of the soundtrack, so that might be a problem. I knew, no, like, it was, like modern pop songs whatever i think the only things were like really like fit the character was like the molly twins always had run the jewels songs and i thought that was pretty in line with those characters okay yeah, i'm not as well versed in music so i didn't even pick up on that they had the same artist for their songs i recognized run the jewels once because their one song i know happened to be used uh but yeah that 
Uh, that actually is interesting. I'm glad to know there's at least some thought and some recurring themes there with the soundtrack that otherwise seemed off-putting to me. Yeah, even though I listen to a lot of music, I, when I'm watching shows, I don't really pay attention to soundtracks. <laughs> like, I, I hear so much stuff about people talking about um, how good a soundtrack is or whatever, but, like, I, to me, I, I, I rarely focus on soundtracks. So I couldn't, I couldn't really, can't put too much input into to it. Yeah, and, I mean, other recurring nitpick here... Uh, I thought what they do with the opening title card, like finishing someone's sentence that like, oh, he'll have to be, and then cut to Invincible. In the first episodes especially, I just thought it was jarring and a little bit forced. And I mean, even in the last episode, I thought they have characters really go out of their way to deliver the line. Like I thought robots line like, oh, to survive this and defeat his dad, Mark will have to be Invincible. Uh, I think the fact we never hear the characters say it and the abrupt cut with silence uh, just makes it seem a little weird in a lot of the episodes. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the main problem is in like a simple face would just be like as they say Invincible, like the title card comes up. But I do like the title card. I like how progressively the title card get bloodier and bloodier and bloodier. Like I like that. I just feel like if they just said Invincible and the title card showed up, it would have just flowed better. Yeah, like, it just seemed like the editing wasn't quite right here, and that there was a better way to do the same joke. So, like, the, the premise isn't wrong, but the delivery uh, definitely but didn't feel right. I, I am disappointed with no theme song, man. Because, you know, this art style is basically just 90s superhero cartoon. That's the art style of the show. And I was really hoping we got, like, just, just a little theme song, man. A little tight, a little, little theme. Disappointed. That is a big missed opportunity now that you say it. And yeah, I would love to hear what the theme song to Invincible would sound like. So yeah, I really hope maybe in some promotional material for season two, maybe we can get something like that. But I don't have uh, my hopes up. Well, it's, I'm just, it's just a pet peeve of mine. And like modern animation, people just like not care about doing cool intros. Even though like anime intros get like millions of views on YouTube. Like people like them. <laughs> Who knows, maybe they'll tap into that and we'll get to see it in the future. But, I mean, kind of wrapping up with, like, our overall series nitpicks and qualms here, I, I want to talk a bit, kind of comparing the two works once again, mainly in that of characters. Uh, we've talked about how Mark is a little more of, like, a flat self-insert character in the comic, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on, like, how you feel like he's different in the show. Oh, man. Okay, so, saying, like, how I see Mark in the comic, and I, I have to think, like, um, comic pop um he does a podcast pretty, way bigger than us uh absolute comics <laughs> and bigger channel but his mindset of invincible and why he loved it so much was that um mark is became a superhero because he liked comic books i was like hey i'm a good superhero because he read comics and you get that a lot because mark's way bigger in the comic than like the show but i i find that uh kind of uninterested uninteresting in like a long format like this uh, like this in the TV show, or like this? Yeah, like if it was like a TV show and Mark was just like a one-to-one -one adaptation, I don't think it would have worked. Because like it's the tone of like trying to do a drama compared to like just trying to do a comedy superhero comic. It's just so way different. You need a better character. And I think the show making Mark a little more inexperienced because like in the comic, he was like good at from the start. Yeah, that that's a great point, is the show, because it has a lot more breathing room, you can do a lot more in one or two episodes of television than you can in six issues of comics. The, yeah. yeah, like, 
you're right. There's a bunch of really great development moments. Every early fight we see with Mark is just way more intense and just shows the horror of being in any kind of uh, battle in a populated area. And yeah, you're right. We get that struggle with him each time. It seems like he doesn't know what to do when aliens are invading and weaker superheroes are doing their jobs. Uh, whereas in the comic, yeah, like, just... I guess it's a appeal to that. I, I heard like some people on Reddit talk about how like it's like a big impact in the comic because the first time we see Mark lose is the first Omni-Man, but I don't I don't like it when my heroes win all the time. Mm. Like I find it'd be pretty boring if Mark just won every single thing, being so inexperienced. That's because the show is like a little more grounded that like Mark has to learn how to fly properly. He he has to learn how to fight. He has to learn how to just be a good superhero from the and we slowly see that throughout the season, which I really enjoy, especially from someone who prefer to see progression in my characters instead of them being like from being 100th from the start. Yeah, it gives him a lot more room to grow over the course of the series. So, yeah, I think it works very well here. And just since I'm not sure where else to mention this, since we see that uh, Mark is very into comics and that influences his choices and like behavior as a superhero, I also like how the comic shows us the writer's love of TV throughout. And maybe this would have fit better earlier in the episode, but on your reread, did you notice all of the old TV show references that have been like throughout the series more than just Reginald Bell Johnson high school? Yeah. I mean, like they put Steve Urkel in the freaking comic. Like he's <laughs> in there. Like you see him from behind, but he's clearly in the freaking comic. Instead of like Amber getting like bullied or getting harassed, it was like just Steve Urkel. I guess just to fill those in who didn't read the comic, like, the comic is covered in old sitcom references, just front to back. I mean, a lot of it's superficial and easy to catch early on. Like, every trade paperback is named after a TV show. There'll be, like, Three is Enough, Full House, uh, Family Matters. Like, that'll be the subtitle of Volume 3 or something like that. And the big reference that, like, the show leans into is that Mark's school is called Reginald Bell Johnson High School. And the principal looks like the actor Reginald Bell Johnson, famous for playing Mr. Winslow in Family Matters and the cop in Die Hard. Uh, but the, the comic's chock full of that. Like, the mall that gets uh, attacked by kind of a suicide bomber is the Twin Pines Mall, which is from Back to the Future, that mall. And one of the characters looks just like that. And there's also a character that looks just like Charlie Brown on the same page. Uh, later on, yeah. there's a few other just big references like that. Like, Black Samson's butler is Mr. Belvedere. Just I, I love all these stupid little references that are here for pretty much no reason, but it definitely shows the writer's love of TV. Um, and, like, the cop who played Carol Winslow, you said earlier, he actually voices um, his char the character in the show. Yeah, I think it even is Principal Winslow in this case. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Kirkman loves his sitcoms. But you wouldn't you wouldn't get it if we weren't like actually new to sitcoms as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like I've just picked up on a lot more cultural references. Like I, I knew at least the sitcom names when I first read this, but yeah, I, I've gone down some YouTube deep dives of hilariously weird sitcoms in the last few years. So, uh, like, the very special episodes, Funnier Dive is a lot on those. So, yeah, I, I'm picking up on them more now. But yeah, back to Mark. I just think Mark overall is just uh, he fits this story. Like they gave him more substance because he's gonna be more drama and stuff. You need like a less of a flat character because I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that's a flaw. Comic Mark is like a flaw 
of him not having too much stuff is like that big of a flaw in the comic just because it's not really focused on drama till like mm-hmm. later on. But yeah, they really did a good adaptation of him. Now, other major character here. Uh, how, how do you feel about Nolan's depiction here compared to the show? It's very subtle. Show Omni-Man is a lot more assholey from the start. Like, it's more foreshadowing that he might be, like, a little asshole. But I think Show Omni-Man cares more about at least Debbie and Mark. Because in the comic, it was, like, Omni-Man, he, he's basically, like, acting as, like, this big superhero. He was doing, like, basically being Superman. He was being a good superhero. And he, like, we didn't see this facade fa- fade until he actually, like, turns due to turn heel. But, like, in the show, we can slowly see him progress. We can slowly see him, like, he's getting more paranoid. He's getting, like, a, his character is kind of wearing off. Like, and we even see it sometimes, like, he he's not as morally righteous as Superman. Like, during some instances with, like, the villains or whatever and, like, how he treats them. And I think it's really interesting. I don't know which t- take I actually like better because Nolan in the comic was... He was enjoying life. Like, he called the Guardians as a friend compared to, like, the show. He called them, like, co-workers. But it was, like, a mask in the comic world. Like, show Nolan really feels like he cared for Mark and Debbie a lot. And he kind of didn't want Mark to even get powers we see in the first episode. Like, I kind of wish he didn't even get them. And we... I, I don't know which one I like better, to be honest. I think I enjoy the show version more. But, again, because of the breathing room that they get to work with here... Because the show gets to explore the father-son relationship between Mark and Nolan. So when we see that Mark wants to be like his dad, or that his dad is the superhero he's trying to emulate, it makes it hurt that much more when they do the heel turn later. So Mm -hmm. I I feel like it's... I don't know how much of this facade, or like seeing Nolan start to break, would have been present in the comic if he had had more time. But we just have more time to do that in the show. At the same time, though, like, while it's interesting to get to see him kind of slowly break as, like, his wife is picking up on the clues that he's the one that killed the Guardians and uh, just, like, not being able to talk to his son about it, I I think the show really leans into how despicable Omni-Man is. Like, I think he is a much less redeemable character in the TV show. Uh, And I think we see that most in the fight between mark and nolan in the final episode as compared to issue 12 of the book uh like in the comic it's really just a standard superhero fight uh the two of them just you know knocking each other around there's a little bit of collateral damage in a city but like nolan isn't going around murdering people whereas in the show nolan might have the highest direct body count of any villain i have ever seen the piece of media like i know darth vader has maybe killed more people blowing up planets but like we see mark using his son as a weapon to directly kill hundreds of people in just a sheer act of violence that I don't think they physically could depict in live-action media. So I don't know how they're going to try and redeem this character in future seasons, if that's the plan here. Yeah, like, this whole this whole mindset of, like, hey, these people are worthless, you cannot see them, like, they don't really matter, they're all going to die. They're like animals or us to us. We That's not really seen in the comic like he talks about it but we don't really see it but like it, it just impacts you so much more when we actually see like how much he really don't care about human life because you know we see there's a lot of media where oh, okay i don't care about killing people like i would do it but you don't see it and like you kind of can think like okay they're just bluffing but like no one is not bluffing when he say you do not care about human life and it just hurts so much more 
when we actually see him, because like in the comic, we see him like do the train thing. We see him just like destroy a train station, basically. But like the comic, we see him, in the show, we see him put Mark face and just into an incoming train. And just things just killing, and it, you just it's such a big impact. He really does not care. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of the thing, show versus the comic. I mean, in the comic, he's beating up his son and saying terrible things. In the show, he's beating up his son and doing unforgivable things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's just such a... um, It's much more of a gut punch when they yeah. do that heel turn. And, yeah, I, I definitely felt more invested in the show, but I feel like for the narrative goals of this character, maybe the comic had it right. Yeah, I feel like they they might have to change some stuff. No spoilers, though, but they might have to change some stuff going with, like, future of the character. But one last thing I want to talk about, I do believe that whole, like, your, her mother was a pet in the comic. I think that was supposed to be played straight, that he actually thought Debbie was a pet to him. Like, this whole Spock thing, the Spock speech, speech about, like, having pets. Of humans, whatever, but um, thinking the show, he actually cares about him. Like, he, I think he's just using hyperbole, saying like, "Ah, your mother's just a pet to me." I I feel like, especially in the moment where he's just like screaming, you really want to get Mark to his side. Really think like, he really loves Debbie, and he really loves Mark, especially because we see that flashback of him as a kid playing like mm-hmm. um baseball, which actually like a it's a panel of that in the comic actually, but we actually get to see it like a full fledged scene. Like I think he actually loves his family in this. Especially with, like, earlier on when he said, like, I kind of wish he didn't get his powers. He would have been better. Like, I think he would have. I see Comic Mark. I mean, Comic Nolan would have took over and did the whole thing regardless. You know? But I think mm-hmm. if Mark never got his powers, I think show Nolan would have just, like, kept being Omni-Man. That's an interesting take. And, yeah, maybe if we have time, we can dive further into that later. But, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of characters with such significant changes here that I'd love to dive into. And, I mean, since we dabbled into the pet territory, which, I mean, has a ton of baggage there, and we're sorry about that. But I did want to talk about your thoughts on Debbie's depiction in the show as compared to the comic. Yeah, comic Debbie is take on a mother, I guess. And she's so... she's. He's unaware of Nolan just from the get. She's not suspicious. Yeah, I mean, Comic Debbie, at least in the first 20 issues, is a completely reactive character. Like, she's just responding to the terrible things happening in her life and trying to keep things together and slowly falling apart. Whereas in the show, she is a very active character. I mean, she figures out what her husband's done and stands up to him and, like, is just a fleshy meat person standing up to the most powerful person on the planet. So yeah, Debbie is, she's by all means a stronger character in the show. So I, I think this is a recurring theme we see in all of the women characters in the TV show. And the other major example that gets discussed a lot is Amber. Uh, and we, we've definitely touched on that a little bit earlier, but I, I really love that the show just reinvented Amber from the ground up and made her a much more interesting and likable character just so we actually have a reason to yeah care about her when mark is being a terrible boyfriend because he's a superhero yeah you know this is the loaded character this is the loaded topic in the invincible community because a lot of people hate amber's guts but I, it's no way in hell i can say like show amber is worse than comic amber because comic amber again she is a character she does have a role in the story but she's basically just a plot device i like to say and not a character. Yeah, I, I mean, 
in volume one of Invincible, she, I don't think she says, or by volume one, I mean the first 13 issues, I don't think she says a single line in that book. But come the next couple volumes, when she starts to get a little more screen time, we do find out she very much is a very realistic person and character, in my opinion. Like, uh, one of the next few issues shows, it's an entire issue dedicated to her figuring out who Mark is and, like, how she felt about Mark beforehand and kind of built him up in her mind before talking to him. As she was kind of explaining herself, I realized, I have met that person in real life. Like, Comic Amber absolutely is a real character. It's just that show Amber is a way more interesting character. Uh, like, one of them is a person you know, the other is a person you want to know. Yeah, show Amber is more fleshed out because they gave her more screen time. You can't just rip comic Amber and just put her into the show. It would not work because I think Kirkman said in one of his interviews that, like, and I think you told me this, that he wanted to do more high school stuff in Invincible because it's so cool. And he, he, he accomplished that with the show because we see more of Mark's and Amber relationship. And I don't think it's, like, unneeded because um Amber really plays the part in, like, the theme of the show of being, like, trust. And we see this from, like, all the female uh significant others of the superhero like how trust has affected them and like not having good trust is uh bad like um amber and like debbie go through like a similar thing but like amber cuts it off with uh mark even though they get back together yeah to get on my soapbox just for a second here but i, I almost feel like american audiences have been basically trained to hate amber for not like falling for mark as soon as he reveals he's a superhero uh because like think about something like die hard where at, we see that our main character has a struggling marriage that's going through a divorce and stuff uh but you know saving the day kind of saves that like just think about how irate audience would be audiences would be if after john mcclain kills all these terrorists saves christmas and his wife if she was then just like well no we're still getting a divorce you killing a bunch of terrorists doesn't change any of the fundamental problems with our relationship like that's kind of the realistic thing to happen but gosh mm -hmm. would we be angry if we saw that in the movie and that's what we get in the show is like yes mark you're a superhero but that doesn't change the fact you've been a terrible boyfriend and not trusted me this whole time and i mean amber does come around when it's important later on so yeah i think all of the reactions to her so far kind of stem from ingrained sexism yeah, man, it's hard to say because people don't want to hear that. But I think it's a sexism when people seem like women as an object to attain. Um, but I think to and this is a big thing, like you said earlier, in like the diary example, like people just do not like it when like a female character, like the boyfriend or significant other of a character, is like angry with the main character because we see the protagonist for from their perspective because they're protagonists. But people hated Carmela from Sopranos, which like Tony. If you don't know Sopranos, like, the, one of the biggest HBO shows of all time uh, about the mob boss. But, like, her husband, Carmella's husband was the main character, Tony. And Tony was, like, a freaking mob boss. But people hated Carmella, even though Tony was, like, a psychopath. And the same thing with Breaking Bad. People hated Skyla, even though Walter White was a sociopath with multiple identity disorder that was selling meth that was trying to be a kingpin. So, like... People just have a, it's just a trend in me that people just hate the significant other of the, the main character. And, and I don't really even see how big of a problem is in like Invincible because people are twisting what Amber was mad at Mark for. Mark, he, she was not mad 
at Mark was a superhero. She was not mad that Mark did not show up at the soup kitchen to help her. She was mad because Mark could not entrust her with her secret identity and try to use a secret identity as a way to win her back. And th that just goes to the able to show of being like, you should trust people. And Mark couldn't trust her. Uh, Red Russ, significant other, she couldn't trust him. Like, trust is a big thing. And like, Mark would not tell her. Like, straight up, I'm a superhero. And, like, you can't even say, like, the secret identity example because William knows. And Mark want Amber to trust him to go to college. Like, hey, I want to be together with you. Even if... And you can't just say the argument of, like, hey, they're teenagers and, like, they're unreliable, can't trust. But that's that's literally how teenagers think. I think we've all had that thought, like, as far as comic fans go, of just, like, winning people over. Like, oh, man, yeah, if I was a superhero, like, man, that would be the way to get a date. But I love that they don't lean into that at all here. Like, yeah. show Amber is way above that. And, yeah, yeah, this works. And it's coming from a misunderstanding of the issue, as you've explained. And one thing I want to talk about, like, um, what's the, what's the clause, Grant, where, like, you need to have if female characters don't talk anything about other than, like, oh, female uh, characters? Oh, the Bechdel. The Be I don't think comic really passes the Bechdel tech, to be honest. And the show definitely does. The show really, like, we see Amber and Eve talk. We see Amber doing stuff, like, in the soup kitchen. We see all these female characters do stuff outside of their uh, male character. And I don't think the comic, I'm not saying, like, Robert Kirkman's sex or anything. I'm just saying, like, it's a little more progressive having, like, the female characters not only care about male characters. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a pr pretty good way to outline how the show handles its female characters a lot better and we're gonna talk about like one of the biggest changes like people don't really noticing because they take a lot of stuff from later on in the series but adam eve is really way better in this portion of the story compared to the comic unless you take a lead on this yeah i mean kind of up that alley like adam eve is sort of introduced as the girl you want to see mark with just with how much they have in common like how much screen time they share compared to the character with no lines of comic amber but tv show eve like I don't necessarily need to see her and Mark get together because they're both such distinct characters. And I like how we don't see Eve moping around nearly as much. She's way more strong-willed and just kind of rolls with the punches. Where in the comic, she is largely reactive, sort of like Debbie was. Uh, just being upset and finding out her boyfriend is cheating on her. And... Uh, like just dealing with the fact that now Mark is with someone else as well. Whereas like she just handles it all with stride in the comic and does her own things and knows what she's capable of where it, it kind of takes a good 15 issues or so for the comic to bring her anywhere close to that point. Yeah. I'm tired of seeing the argument that like Amber took screen time away from um Adam Eve. I don't know if you've seen this criticism, but I, people keep saying that, but they're not really, that's 100% not true because Adam actually does everything she does in the comic and she plus more i mean we see her in the comic we didn't she didn't help with doc's uh, seismic she does in the, um the show um we see her we see her talking with her parents um we didn't see that in the comic in this portion of the story and we see they they pushed up her stuff like her exploring the world and helping out people i do like how they changed it from like her just the stereotypical like uh go help like a village in africa but now she's in the show she's doing way more just helping the world overall like she is a way stronger character and she's up to par with mark almost and like strength because in the comic like she was weaker but like you can really see like she's an independent character outside of being in a relationship i mean even in the freaking comic we didn't even get to see like the they got her confront rex she just mopes and cries and like she cries when mark's making out with um amber like she's not moping about a boy 
And like that is a take, but I prefer this version of Adam in the show. I, I feel like this is what makes the show just seem so strong is just one by one. I prefer show Mark. I prefer show Amber. I prefer yeah. show Debbie. I prefer show Eve. It's, it's kind of down the list, but like I, I think I kind of want to quickly go through our last few here that have less screen time, but just enough to show us how much uh, more they're able to hook us in on the TV series. Let's start. We'll start with like the less impact, like uh, Damien Darkblood. He was just a joke in the comic. He basically was like, he got late to the party, finding out Nolan. Was yeah, I mean, he's song. just a joke, but such a good joke there with like two, three issues after the big fight, him showing up. I know who killed the Guardians of the Globe. And everyone just laughs his ass out of the room because everyone already knows that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Molly Twins, this is pretty big. They don't really do much. They had a funny joke about like black samson butler taking like way more time than i'm taking them down but like they're mostly just like they're um they do more stuff later but that's like spoiler for season two but like they they're way bigger in the I, I forgot the clone stuff didn't exist till later on in the comic but like i'm the real one they're the real one like i didn't know that stuff was like later on oh you're right yeah they're just kind of yeah they're just kind of recurring bland henchmen through the comic they just are like okay yeah they're frequent villains but yeah you're right i totally forgot that it wasn't until at least the second major volume that they started going into that whole, like clone debate of which one's the original yeah uh cecil pretty they have similar roles but cecil in the comic was a little more like funny a little more like i, I always imagine cecil was like a texan <laughs> like a texan oil dude like mm -hmm. Like a like a little showboaty, and like in the show, he's a little more down and to earth, and like likes doing his job. And I, I'm definitely sure like comics sees like doing his job. And you know, I think some of that could draw from just like what they're pulling on for inspiration from Cecil in this case, because like Cecil is just supposed to be Nick Fury. And writing this book in 2003, Nick Fury was a much different character than he is in 2021, where we've now seen him as Samuel L. Jackson and like you kind of like Nick Fury and you know he is a good guy. And Cecil in this, like, he has the hardest job in the world, but you can tell he does care for the people he's around. He has he has a cool he has a way cooler moment, like with the freaking uh, teleport thing, like like when Omni Man stole every time. But I do miss like this so funny joke that Cecil's like addicted to teleporting even though it costs five million dollars of taxpayer money. Yeah, I'm surprised that didn't at least get a one-liner joke, and I would almost bet that was somewhere in the show and got cut. But yeah, especially like how much funnier that would land that teleportation sequence if we if the TV show audience knew that it cost the tactless players like five million every time you did yeah. it. But um one last thing, it's the Guardians of the Whole. Guardians of the Whole just get so much more screen time, and we really get to see them do stuff. Um, especially because they take a fight scene from later on in the story and put it in like episode five, and we, we get to get all their own little side plots, which we don't really get to see in the, the comic, which make the world just feel bigger. Yeah, and I actually didn't know what you mean meant at first when you said the Guardians. I didn't know if you meant the original team that gets murdered and the new guys. And honestly, your statement is true for both, though. Yeah, for both. Since yeah, like, the first team, we get to see them at their best, be very capable, whereas the book just tells you enough to be like, okay, guys, Darkwing is Batman, Red Rush is Flash, so-and-so is Wonder Woman, like, yeah. They die, like, the first time, when they, they die, like, the first on-screen appearance, the same issue, they die. Well, and, like, the show actually does it smart. We get to see them in episode one, they slowly build them up, and then you get to kill them, so it's a little more weight. Like, we just figured out these characters, and then they die. And, like, the later team, like, 
Tain Tain barely does stuff in the comic. You barely get any characterization, but like we get a whole episode with him in the show. They push robot development and him getting like his human body way earlier in the show, which I like. I think it's gonna add some interest in the dynamics. Um, and I just like the team way better. I'm, I can't even say way better because they were barely in it at the start of the comic. Like they're just way more fleshed out. And I just add that to just having more screen time, and they used it good. Yeah, and I mean, that's not just a matter of characters being better. It's just fleshing out the whole idea a lot more. Because a genuine flaw with the comic is that we see Robot be asked to lead the new Guardians of the Globe without really being shown why that Robot is the choice for that. Uh, And also, we see that he's struggling with it in the show, or see the team struggle where the comic... Uh, Donald is just like, hey, your response time is garbage and you're on probation, but without ever actually showing us that. The, the show just had the room to actually depict these things rather than having to tell the audience like the book had to. Yeah, and and this is going to be a little leeway to the next points, but I think the show really, and Kirkman said himself, like, I'm going to do some rearranging and stuff. I think his point was that he does a lot of foreshadowing in the comic, like a lot of bread trails or whatever. And you say, like, I think some of that stuff was unnecessary. So I'm just going to come press stuff. So, like, the Flaxons, they, they appear often. He just knocks, like, the main stuff out in episode two. Um, the Readamon, that was, like, an ongoing plot for, like, almost 50 issues. He knocks him out in, like, one episode. Cause, and, like, it's a lot of stuff. Like, the robot stuff. Like, it was foreshadowing, it just knocks out one episode, and I just think that's better pacing for a show. Just knock stuff out instead of just waiting so long. I think, like, having a long-running comic, you can have that foreshadowing, but, like, in a show, I think you just want to, like, knock stuff out if you can. Yeah, and plus, I mean, there's just so much more room to leave these breadcrumbs and plant ideas and subplots through a TV show than you get in 20 pages of comics. So, yeah, I, I just think TV is generally the better medium when you have so much talent, like, yeah. uh, comparing... Like, and I know this is kind of a bigger theme, but the show has innumerable people doing a great job between the writers, mm-hmm. animators, sound design people, just the army it takes to make a good cartoon. Whereas a comic book only takes like one to at most six talented people yeah. to be good. And like, it's just you got a lot of people just telling, like bringing their own ideas to the table, like robot. I mean, machine head voice was the Kirkman idea, but it was such like, I can't imagine machine head any other way. And mm-hmm. it's just, and I, I, another key thing, like they they took out stuff from the comic, but they took out stuff and and just added like better stuff. You know, like they got rid of the plot line about like the the teacher making people in the bombs, and just added like the Titan story, added the uh, Martian story, added the got some something else earlier on, just because it probably just makes better content. Yeah, and Robert Kirkman was recently on uh, Kevin Smith's podcast, Fat Man Beyond, and both him and his co-host Mark gave him. Kind of some gruff, because the reanimen and the human bombs in the comic are so close together. They're like, yeah, we, uh, like, you probably were right not to do two different kind of mechanical teenage people against their will in the show. Like, it's just too similar, both those ideas. Yeah. So let's want to move on to, like, just the uh, last bit of comparison. Uh, the father-son yeah. dynamic. I think we touched on it a little bit, but you have any more thoughts on it? Uh, I mean, just that it, yeah, I like that it builds so much more out of Omni-Man and, like, Mark's relationship with him, because, like, all we really get from the comic is he's a good dad and popular superhero, whereas this show's, like, 
what's it actually like to be the kid of the most trusted superhero on the planet? Like, you, you get the comparison to Superman a lot more and how big of a shadow that leaves to his kid. It's kind of weird, but in the comic, it doesn't really feel like Mark really wants to be, like, Omni-Man, you know? Yeah, he just wants to be a superhero in the comic, uh, not specifically his dad. He just wants to be a superhero, but he doesn't want to be on you, man. I also kind of want to point out, like, as far as people that are averse to violence and stuff, we, we've already talked about how the last fight especially is so much more brutal in the TV show. But that's pretty true for all of the violence in the show versus the comics. And the comics definitely very violent and very bloody, but it's not mm-hmm. nearly as graphic or gruesome. Like... Uh, the Reanimate episode of the TV show actually really kind of bugged my wife since she's not like a horror movie fan. Kind of avoids uh, like many kind of body horror, dismemberment, dismemberment things like that. Uh, the comic does a good job telling you what's happening without really graphic, traumatizing moments. Just doing simple artistic tricks, whereas the show really leans into all of it. So yeah, the comic might be the better platform for you to take this stuff in if you don't really have a stomach for violence. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say, like, because the comic has it. It's just not in this part portion of the story. Like, I think the bloodies we see is, like, um, in the Omni-Man fight. But, like, Invincible's, like, like, people talk about how, like, bloody and, like, gritty stuff isn't, like, Invincible later on. But, like, they just applied that stuff too earlier in the story compared to, like, comics, like, pretty light on violence. Pretty, like, yeah. this, like, horrifying, like, but, like, later on, like... Especially Raleigh and like the stuff season two to that, and like shit gets real. Yeah, um, I mean, as far as other changes, like I noticed, there are some themes that seem either more present in the comic or more present in the show. Like I noticed, the book has kind of a recurring line about how nobody really looks up, uh, and that kind of being used as an excuse for how they can change and fly away from secluded places without anyone noticing. But also, I think it has kind of a commentary on like the lack of inspiration among normal people or like the lack of optimism and how like superheroes kind of supposed to be that sense uh and that's just the theme i don't think has been present in the show at all yet but it was very much introduced this early in the book i don't think robert kirkman was intentionally trying to have that theme or like really wanted to focus on that theme in the the comic because i don't really see like underlying focus on that yeah there's Plenty of buildup with it. I remember specifically in a lot of Adam Eve moments, but yeah, I don't think by the end of the series there's a ton of payoff with that theme. Yeah. But like the, the theme with trust is like they say the word trust so many freaking times. Like mm-hmm. like especially in that scene when like Nolan talking to Debbie, like, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Like Amber saying like Mark, you couldn't trust me. Red Rush wow fiance saying you can't trust me like it's such an underlying thing like even like freaking mark and nolan saying like you couldn't can you can trust me or you can't trust me like that's such a big theme of the show and i i really like it and i mean as far as other common themes or things that are present in the comic missing in the show go uh i really do miss robert kirkman's humor and how it mm-hmm. how much it works in the medium of comics like I don't really care much for Robert Kirkman's earlier humor books from before Invincible, but here I think it just works very well. We've kind of mentioned a few of his recurring bits and like best jokes. I don't think the jokes would land as well in a TV show, but I think it is something that 
makes the book very much worth reading and a strength it has over the TV show. They took William's running gag out. I don't think we even talked William because William's a pretty different character, but William doesn't really do much outside of his running gag and being like a friend of Mark. But like that running gag of like um, <laughs> William saying like people are just too lazy of calling him just Will. Like people are lazy by calling him Will, just call him William, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I, I I really just feel like that's just some self insert rant Robert Kirkman have him have people calling him Rob. Oh yeah, you know what? I didn't even think of it about that, but yeah, I I can certainly see why that would get removed now, uh, and I feel like it kind of gets into some political areas as to why that joke might not land on TV or might rub some people the wrong way. Uh, but yeah, I I think it works a little better in the book and. I'm not surprised the show left it out, but again, I, it's its presence is met, definitely missed. Yeah, and it's uh, I can't name like any outrageous jokes like I laugh out loud other than like the ones we already mentioned. But like it's it's funny moments in this. Like Kirkman did a pretty good job of making like a funny superhero book. Like I give him to that. And I'm, I'm not saying I don't think the show was like the funniest thing. It's not that many jokes other than like Rex made a couple one-liners, but that's about it. Um. So yeah, I give it to that. It's another thing I want to mention is um, how do you feel about the lack of like other properties? Kirkman like properties being in this. Oh right, uh, and I mean that's kind of a bigger question beyond Kirkman. Like in the early issues of Invincible, we see other Image Comics characters like Savage Dragon and Super Patriot, but there's also Kirkman's other creations like Tech Jacket and Capes and the Astounding Dog Man. Uh, Wolfman. Yeah. Wolfman. Well, yeah. Or no, I, I science dog is what I was thinking of. Oh, and yeah, yeah the astounding dog. wolf man. That's it. Yeah, I got those mixed together. Yeah, I'm I'm sad they're not here, and I think Robert Kirkman's kind of shooting himself in the foot by not doing that. Like I think there's a lot of good you can do with those characters and giving them a little screen time here might help plant them elsewhere, give a little more interest if he wants to do a Wolfman or Tech Jacket series down the line. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm definitely bummed they're not here, but I can see why he just wants to focus on the characters important to this story. I'm, like, I'm sad just because, like, I think he said his reasoning was he didn't want to give Amazon the rights to his IPs. Because they're, like, they're, cause they're, they exist before Invincible. Like, capes as well. Um, so it's kind of just sucky because, like, those characters are so in my mindset of what's Invincible is, you know? Like, I think of, like, Tech Jacket. I think of, um... I think of Capes, not because of their own series, none of their series took off, but because of Invincible. And I don't really think, like, those properties would have too much impact if you don't even, like, at least mention them in Invincible beforehand. So it's bumming he's, like, not letting them be in it. Because, like, I, I like Capes in Invincible. I don't like the comic Capes, but I like it's, I like Capes in Invincible because they're, like, the 9 to 5 superhero and it reminds me a lot of, like, Myrick Damian and, like, One Punch Man. Air agencies like it's it's cool stuff so i'm bummed that he won't add him especially tech jack because he's he's such like cordon later on and i don't see how much appeal tech jack would have because like he's basically blue beetle i am a rare is like the one with the, the scarab on his back basically and like i don't know how much impact a tech jack show will really have that because he's getting the movie so i wish season two he just bring them all in yeah, and I get it with some of them. Like, I don't think Astounding Wolfman needs to be here, especially because his stories are so much different in such a weird corner of this world. Uh, but yeah, like, this world is definitely by not having capes or Brit in it. Like, just 
there's a lot of great ideas and a lot of great additions from the comics of the work, and they work better as background characters than protagonists. Yeah, they made they just made the they made the world just feel bigger. Now, uh, any other final points then before I take us to our question of the week? Um, you want to go in like a little spoilers territory, right? Just want to go over his last point. Do you think like Omni Man is redeemable at all? Whether or not Omni Man is a redeemable character, like I think the show went a little bit too far. Like it. You can't at least make him the same kind of hero or give him any kind of the same return to Earth. And I definitely don't think you can have him get back with Debbie in any kind of okay way. Because, uh, I mean, now, if Debbie gets back with him, she's dating Superman, but also Hitler. Just with, like, how uh, recklessly and, like, directly he murdered so many people. Like, I do not want to see a strong character like Debbie get back with a literal monster like that. So, I think you can absolutely still have him, like, die in a heroic way if they choose to kill the character or like maybe do a heroic thing here or there but yeah i actually absolutely believe he's beyond redemption just because like the stuff he does in the last episode i think is more messed up than anything we've seen homelander do in the boys and Mm -hmm. like nolan doesn't have the same excuses and i really can only see him like having a heroic death if they're gonna give him any kind of like last redemptive moments here. yeah it's like the kylo ren situation of like if they didn't kill kylo ren what would like he just be in jail because <laughs> he's still like a murderer <laughs> um i don't i'm not sure i i feel like it's not like the same as like getting back with your abuser but it's kind of like you going back with a criminal if debbie get back together with omni man and i don't see this version of debbie getting back with omni man so i'm hoping they can actually just play with it because they don't have to be, they don't have to do the same thing. I feel like they're just going to play with it a little bit. Like, he's definitely not putting like, this out there now. Let's have Debbie get with Immortal rather than him get together with a uh, duplicate. Like, I feel like that would actually work a lot better. Put Debbie with someone better than Nolan because Nolan does not deserve her after what he did. I forgot that Immortal and Duplicate thing. Um, <laughs> I was kind of bad. That old ass man. Oh, one last thing. It's all unrelated, but we're just doing our final thoughts, whatever. I would like to say, um, I do like how Eve was like not calling like duplicate like a sled and all that. And like they was a little they, they showed like hey Rex they put like motor to blame on Rex. Like I it's just stuff I like to see. Yeah. Yeah, I think Robert Kirkman has just grown a lot as a person and knows how to be like he's a lot more aware of issues and what's not okay now than he was when he was 24 and i'm very glad that he didn't persist on making sure any of the most problematic aspects of the invincible comic had to be here in the show i think that's shows a lot of maturity on his part yeah because like it's 2003 he's like 23 so like the comic had like a lot of like it was a lot of problems it kept a comment like problematic like it was a lot of gay jokes and william like i i think i think it's in this one like when William comes out the closet, like Marsh just leave because it's super awkward. Oh dang, I didn't get that far in my reread, but yeah, yeah I didn't read it, but I I remember it, and it was like ah, that's kind of like kind of bad. <laughs> so yeah. I'm happy, like, it, and I'm not like the comic in Kirkman is better at it because like Williams is openly gay in the show, so it's all good. Yeah, so I would say if you're revisiting the comic, be aware uh, there are problematic moments like that. It's not as bad as the TV show like Friends, I would say. Yeah, it's but not that bad as Friends. Mean... <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean it's innocent either. So, but, um, uh, you can leave this question today. 
Yeah, so bring this to a close with our question of the day here. I wanted to ask you, Nate, uh, after watching this series that I think we both agree is better than the 12 to 20 issues it's based on, would you recommend a newcomer to get into Invincible with the show or with the comic first? That's the beauty of this being like a, not a one-to-one adaptation that you watch the show to plug people in and like then you tell them to read the comic if you want more. Because it's like different enough that rely on one of them, you know? So like if they even if they read all the way to the comic before like season two come out, they could just be like, wow, I want to see how they change stuff in the show. So like show and then you can lead them on to the comic. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there that the show is just a great intro to a wide audience here and even a comic reading audience as well, just to get them the idea of Invincible in just one or two hours. Just show them the first two episodes and they have everything they need to know of whether or not this is going to be something that interests them. So yeah, I would also go with the show first. Uh, However, I think if someone is averse to very violent content or kind of shopping for someone else who like isn't maybe is a little too young for the sheer amount of violence in the show. I think the comic is a good alternative just because it's not quite as traumatizing with it. And I also love that there's just so much more of the comic. So yeah, I would say use the show as a sample platter and get into the comic if you still like it, since obviously they're going to continue to change a lot. And even though you almost definitely will find the first 12 issues are a worse version of season one, they're very quick reads, so it's not like you're going to be stuck in that or have some horrible, massive reading you have to get through to get to the good part. Yeah, just um, just what your point saying, like it's it's not as like broody and whatever. Just keep in mind that like the comic gets there though. Like it's not like it's not there. Like the comic absolutely get there, especially around like the forty issues. Like like violence is like pretty much similar to the comic at that uh, as the show at that point. So it's not like a show with R-rated and the comics PG-13. Like, the comics actually, like, might be worse in some sense in the later stuff. Yeah, that's very true. If you're averse to hard violence, maybe avoid Invincible altogether. Yeah, I don't think Invincible is, like, for you. Yeah, and one thing I did at least want to throw out there for those checking out the comics, um, I think the trades and the massive compendium books that collect, like, 50 issues altogether are really good. But if you love Invincible or are really interested in, like, comic book writings and such, or, uh, like, the aspect, like, what goes into writing a comic book, I would very much recommend you try and find a way to read the individual issues, uh, whether that means, like, buying the books and getting a torrent or going on Comicsology and, uh, like, reading them there. Because Robert Kirkman says a bunch of interesting stuff about his writing process there. I'll admit I may be a little biased because I'm actually published in one of the letters columns for issue 138. But regardless, I always really loved just seeing like his direct response to the fans, what he was thinking, plans with the book and things that he wanted to come to be or didn't come to be. It's very interesting. And it's like the DVD bonus features of a book. So yeah, do check out the individual issues in a way that for you affordably just support the official release first of course yeah definitely and like if you want to read like the whole thing it's columbiums are like 60 dollars a piece and um it might sound like a lot but you get the whole story in this nice big um package for only like 180 dollars i was lucky and got my my first one when it was only like 30 bucks and i wish i can go back mm-hmm. in time and get the rest when they were like 30 bucks before like the show was even announced but 
good price regardless. Or on Comicology as well, it's pretty cheap. It's like ten dollars for like forty-seven issues. Like it's good deals. Yeah, yeah. Do check out Comicsology sales in general if you love comics. But yeah, we're definitely with you there. But with that, that'll bring our episode to a close. We'd like to thank you once again for giving our podcast a listen. And we want to give a special shout out to Lady Grayson for designing our logo. You can find her as at Lady G underscore Nightwing on Twitter. If you have a question of the week you'd like to hear featured on the show, you can send it to us on social media. We're on Facebook as Comically Confused and on Twitter as at New52Podcast. If you want to support the show, you can join us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month at patreon.com slash comicallyconfused. Patron perks include bonus episodes, access to our fan discord, and special shoutouts like this one to our first ever league-level member patron, who you can find on Twitter as at I'm Grant Keller, or the shout-out to our newest patron, Kai Brooks. Thanks so much for the support, guys. And finally, if you want a free way to help us out, please leave us a review on iTunes, as that does really help us get promoted in their algorithms. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll join us again next time as we continue our coverage of the new 52. Till then, we'll still be here, comically confused.